Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Michael A. Shepner, author of the new, 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 newly published book from our friends at Cambridge University Press entitled Moral Contagion, Black Atlantic Sailors, Citizenship, and Diplomacy in Antebellum America. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me today, Adam. For sure, for sure. No, it's um, it's a pleasure. Uh, your book, like I told you offline, was uh, was just a beauty. Uh, not only you know the title has all the great buzzwords, but also the fact that uh, you know, you know, my work is very much in, interested in 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 conversing with those who are writing about Black Atlantic sailors and 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 just thinking about diplomacy, um, <laughs> especially. Uh, in, in in today's climate, um, especially, and so um, before we get too far away, can we get you to talk to us about um, you know the, this first part of your title? Where does the term "moral contagion" fit into this particular story? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and actually, I wrestled quite a bit with with titles. Um, it the title for the book transformed quite a bit from the this is distilled the book distilled from my from my dissertation, the dissertation has a completely different title. Um, and, and I was, the more and more I read through the sources, especially the early primary sources on the adjudication of these laws against black sailors, there was a term that kept sort of reemerging for the, amongst people that were defending these laws targeting black sailors. And that term was, was moral infection or moral contagion, uh, you know, moral pestilence. And, and every time I saw it, I thought to myself, you know, that, that term has resonance. Right. And, and, you know, I've, uh, I've taught quite a bit. I taught at community college. I taught while I was a grad student at Florida. And, you know, I taught both halves of the U.S. history survey and, and this theme of sort of dangerous outsiders and, and people that are threatening from beyond, not just because of, um, you know, not just because of economic factors or something like that, but there was something sort of morally wrong with them, something morally corrupted with them. Um, made me think that this story, yes, it's about black sailors. Yes, it's about the way that African-American sailors affect the idea of citizenship, but also speaks to a much larger process by which uh, outsiders are are condemned because of something um, supposedly wrong with their sort of moral compass or or the way that they think about the world. And and so the reason I use that as a title is, is you know, I use the it's it's sort of a standard fare for historians, right? To to have a sort of catchy phrase for the for the title and then sort of explain things in the subtitle. But I thought that, that that title would make the book appeal not just to people who are interested like we are uh, in race and, and citizenship uh, in the antebellum period, but but about people who think about borders and, and how outsiders are constructed discursively across time. So so that's that I hope it works. Uh, that's that's the rationale behind the title. 
And and at least uh, on my behalf, uh, I'd like to say it, it works um, very well. And um, it, and so when we talk about Black Atlantic sailors, um, can you talk to us about what made a Black Atlantic sailor um, and, and versus someone who's primarily dealing with um, a, a more coastal maritime employment, like on docks and such, just in like port cities like a Douglas in Baltimore? Yeah, sure. So. Um... This is sort of not something that I sort of came up with um, before the fact. Uh, in many ways, um, the, the, the book started, dissertation started with a series of documents in the British Foreign Office. Um, God bless the British Foreign Office. They are incredibly adept record keepers. Uh, and there are a number of British consuls that were stationed in the U.S. South in the same port cities uh, in which um, these laws against black sailors were being enforced. And so, um, when the British uh, state was hearing about these complaints uh, from British consuls regarding the arrest and detainment of, of uh, Afro-British sailors, uh, they created this beautiful archive, right, of unfortunate events. And so I actually started reading up about about the the Seaman Acts um, from the British point of view. And so it, the, the sources themselves were presented uh, in Atlantic Sailor, the, the, the laws that are on the books throughout the Antebellum South, they don't make any mention of of nationality. Um, race was the only sort of marker that they were worried about. And so the statutes are pretty explicit that regardless of nationality, uh, free black sailors that entered, entered these port cities would be arrested. Uh, so the statute itself applied to, to everybody. Um, and it just so happened that the sources uh, that, that at least initially best cataloged the effects of those laws on the maritime workforce were British. And so um, the Atlantic sailor sort of uh, was in some ways defined by you know, by the states that were enacting these laws, but also by the sources that I was first able to capture to, to get at the experiences of the sailors themselves. Exactly. And so I also think that um, the, the the multitude of sailors that you're, that you're speaking about, um, it really also goes to show like um, a couple of days ago, um, I, you know, I'm writing a a large research uh, and, or I'm in a research writing course uh, right now at the University of Delaware. And um, one of the uh, sources I was using in my, in our uh, workshopping of our ideas and such uh, with the you know, annotated bibliography, all that cool stuff um, was uh, actually dealing with the Mystic Seaport um, digitized uh, semen protection certificates. Um, I, I think that's how the full gambit goes. And so um you know, it it's interesting because you saw the fungibility of race and how you had stories of people from like, you know, Cabo Verde, Cape Verde, and, you know, you know, and, and their name has Portugal on it and they're considered Negro in the United States. And, you know, you have people from, you know, various, you know, complexions and such and, and from different areas, um, the African diaspora. And um and it's interesting because your story you know, also talks about how if you are detained in a port city uh, like Charleston, South Carolina, what if you're Native American uh, or what if you, you know, project yourself uh, as a as an indigenous person? And so um, can you talk to us about how kind of like the fungibility of race is also intertangled with this, uh, quote unquote, moral contagion? Yeah, that, and that's a great question. And, you know, there's there's been a lot of work in the past 15 years about um, the, the, you know, the fact that racial terms 
when they were deployed then and now too, but especially back in the 19th century, that, that racial terms were meant to, to relate to an objective reality that everybody knew, right? So, so everybody knew what, was, what a black person was, what a white person was. But, but of course, you know, these, are, these are social constructions and, and uh, you know, race is, is invented. Uh, and and in, in the case of these laws, right, um, they quite specifically targeted people, quote, of the Negro race. I mean, that, that phrase is in most of, the, most of the laws against black sailors. But what does that actually mean, right? Uh, and so, because the laws actually excluded um, people of Native American ancestry, um, people from beyond the Cape, beyond the uh, Cape, um, from it, it excluded Lascars and and Moors, the terms that they used. And so, in some ways, it was trying to create a a, a race and a geography, a Black Atlantic sailor. But by carving out those exceptions, by saying that a Native American is exempt from this law, by saying that somebody from around the Cape of Good Hope is, is exempt from the law, by saying that somebody who is Alaska is exempt from the law, um, it invited people to play with the, the obvious subjectivity of race, right? That, that this is an elastic term. And so there are a number of cases uh, that I found where you had um, sailors of color, uh, sort of a broader term, um, who try to put it upon the state of South Carolina to prove that they're actually black. And, you know, it, again, it's meant to, these terms are meant to be objective realities, but when you try to prove something that isn't inherently subjective, that's a very challenging thing to do. Um, in some of these instances, there's, there's one case in 1824, South Carolina, where a, a Rhode Island sailor by the name of Amos Daly arrives uh, and he's put in jail and, and he fights the law in court. And he basically says that, that I'm Native American. And, and so there, this, this courtroom that's supposed to be adjudicating whether, um, you know, this black sailor actually entered the state of South Carolina, which the sailor definitely entered the South Carolina, but was he actually, um, you know, of African descent, um, that became sort of the centerpiece of the trial. And so th these trials are not just about sort of, you know, about uh, adjudicating, you know, entry. It's also about defining what race actually is. And for Amos Daly, he's found guilty. Um, they, they basically say that, you know, he may have the complexion of somebody that might not be of African descent. Uh, but in the words of one of the one of the witnesses, uh, his wooly hair gave him away. And, and so there's this sort of these, you know, just amazing ways in which people who are in charge of determining race are, are, are reaching to try to find some sort of objective measure to define something that is in its essence not objective at all. I also think about this question of race when it comes to the development of British citizens of, of British uh, citizenship, rather, because if you think about it as well, and and your and your text does this very well, um, it it really um, intervenes in in these conversations about um, the development of of British citizenship at the time of British abolition of slavery as well. So kind of thinking about that, how did this process of, you know, black or Afro uh, British sailors coming into American ports, how did that put, you know, the United States in a precarious position with one of their most, most if not the most important economic uh, trade partner? Yeah, that's a great question. And this really put a lot of uh, statesmen um, 
Southern statesmen uh, in Charleston and New Orleans in a, a particularly difficult position, right? Because many of these statesmen who are representing commercial interests in New Orleans, Charleston, uh, eventually Mobile, Savannah, um, they have a um, they have a profound economic interest in keeping seaborne trade open and flowing. And these laws interrupt trade, uh, especially trade that's going on between the British West Indies and the U.S. South. And so they routinely try to push against these laws, try to try to argue uh, that these laws are not the most efficacious, that they are uh, economically problematic. But the problem they face is they run up against political opponents that are willing to paint them as um, race traders, as, as people that are not interested in protecting the safety and welfare of Southern society, that they're, they're willing to, to push for economic um, progress at the expense of the safety of, of white Southerners. And so even though many Southern white statesmen were focusing on you know, trying to get these laws off the books to, to protect these trading interests, they were very easily painted uh, by the political opponents as people that were um, willing to, to jeopardize the safety of Southern society. And that made them vulnerable. And, and so uh, they ended up losing most of these political battles, at least for the first you know, 15 or so years while these Seaman Acts were on the books. Eventually, uh, that position uh, ends up winning, but only after the British state uh, uh, sort of concedes that, that their black sailors can be treated differently than white sailors. So, so once the British state sort of uh, steps back from its sort of very assertive racial progressivism of the 1930s, that same progressivism that led to toleration laws, the Emancipation Act, um, but by the 1950s, uh, and I think this is well, sort of well borne out in the literature, uh, the British state had stepped back from that sort of really uh, strong racial progressivism. And they, they more or less concede uh, that, that their, their black sailors can be treated differently uh, than their white sailors in southern U.S. cities. And can you also describe for the audience who might not be aware of, you know, the, these laws that are on the books in southern uh, towns and port cities, um, you know, because you use things like the uh, Negro Seamen Act in, in various locations. So can you, uh, before you get too far, uh, define what those were and kind of also the conditions at which those who were apprehended were, um, were, were, were living under? Yeah, so, so it's one of the reasons I don't, I try not to use the term Negro Seamen Acts and Seamen Acts all the time. Um, and it, I do use them occasionally, especially in the introduction, um, is to try to get away from treating them as a whole um, because it, they, they, they look different and, and they do different things at different times. Um, and so, uh, so basically the, the Seaman Acts is a shorthand for a series of laws that were passed throughout the antebellum South. So South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and for a short period, Texas. So, so all the southern states south of the Chesapeake, all the way around the Florida Keys, all the way up until you get to, to Texas. At some point in the Ambulum period, all of those states passed laws that basically barred the entrance of free black sailors, regardless of nationality, regardless of constitutional considerations, regardless of treaty laws, et cetera. Um, but, but different states um, had different sort of regulations. Um, and, and even though they all target sailors of the Black Atlantic, um, some of them uh, require immediate incarceration. Um, you know, most of the states do that, but some states didn't. Uh, North Carolina did not require um, immediate incarceration. They called their law quarantine. 
And they basically just stipulated that free black sailors, uh, the vessels they're on, had to ride quarantine, which, again, fits into this narrative of moral contagion. They said to ride quarantine for 30 days. Uh, and once uh, that happened, uh, then the, you know, the, the, the restrictions were lifted. Uh, same thing with Georgia, at least for uh, over a decade. It was, this was just a quarantine measure. So, so they weren't necessarily, black sailors weren't necessarily incarcerated. Uh, so, so the laws are, are implemented, they're enforced uh, in varying degrees. The stipulations according to the statute, the way they're enforced a little bit different. So, so though I use the term as a shorthand, a lot of the book tries to tell the story about how at different points in time, these, these laws were, were acting in different ways uh, and were, were variably uh, enforced. This is an interesting point, too, because I think about um, two books that um, I think are really important to the story, too. When I think about um, Charlotte Fetz's um, Recaptured Africans, which talk about this quarantine bit when it comes to um, captive Africans coming to the shores in the in, you know, in the illegal period of of the transatlantic slave trade here in the States. But then also thinking about. Um, Julia Scott's is uh, the common win too, because I think about oh, yeah. like what are they what are they scared of? Um, meaning the southern port cities, you know, what are they scared of as far as um, you know why why are black sailors you know of all stripes considered dangerous? Why are they considered? Um, dangerous to the societies at which they're, you know, trading with, you know, as, as sailors. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then, but then, yeah. And also thinking about, you know, how, you know, well, well yeah, I'll, I'll just leave that as a question open-ended. Uh, what are they scared of? That, that's a good point. And, and so uh, I think the, the fact that black sailors become such a lightning rod is uh, for Southern anxiety. Um, really stems from a couple of different processes that are happening simultaneously. I think on the one hand, there's a general sort of ideological shift in the South uh, away from sort of the, the mantra and whether this was sort of true to their, uh, true to their philosophies or, or true to their, you know, to, if they really believe this or not, I'm not sure. But the revolutionary generation, even among Southern statesmen, were very uncomfortable with the fact that this new republic uh, was a slaveholding republic. And, um, and, and so this, this notion of necessary evil uh, was sort of a reigning paradigm. And, and I understand that, 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 you know, for some that was just lip service. But the fact that that, that ideology was still fairly pervasive, um, I think, goes to show that, you know, there was no necessary fear of something like outside agitation, right? When, when, when you know, Jefferson and Henry and others were talking about slave insurrection, they were talking about the fact that slavery itself deprived uh, individuals of their of their sort of natural born liberty, and so slavery itself was was you know a good reason for why there's slave rebellion. But over the course of the you know the eighteen teens, eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, in the aftermath of the Haitian Re- uh, Revolution, and with Denmark Bessie, uh, we see the, the emergence of this, this slavery as a positive system um, emerging to displace some of that that sort of anxiety that some of the revolutionary generation had. And it's out of this sort of positive good ideology that we see paternalism emerging and things like that. And, and part of what this ideological move does is it, 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 it sort of describes slaves as sort of you know, happy and, and docile and in some ways, um, you know, happy with the fact that this, these structures are in place. 
you know, painting slavery itself as some this sort of benevolent social system. But the problem is, is that if you start painting slavery as a positive social system, how do you explain that Turner? How do you explain slave rebellion if slaves are, you know, supposedly so uh, happy and docile? And and I think the anxiety against uh, free black sailors was sort of a manifestation of this notion of outside agitation that that if you're going to subscribe to the idea that slavery itself is not a you know a vicious system uh, and that it's good and that everybody seems to be gaining from it, then how do you explain <laughs> slave unrest and insubordination? And and I think free black uh, Southerners and, and free black sailors they became lightning rods of anxiety as a way to explain why these supposedly happy and obedient slaves uh, were insubordinate, why they were rebelling. Uh, and in, in some ways it exonerates, right? I mean, the, the identifying morally contagious sailors as the impetus behind slave uh, insurrection, slave rebellion, uh, exonerates slavery itself for creating the conditions um, that slaves are rebelling against, right? And so I think that's mm-hmm. why they become, I think in, in terms of ideology, that's one of the reasons why when there's even more practical uh, I think reasons for this. Um, I, I, it's pretty well known that uh, uh, the Denmark Vesey uh, rebellion um, pinpointed uh, black sailors as being orchestrators in the rebellion and, and whether uh, the rebellion was overblown or not. And I know that's still uh, heavily debated in the literature. And, and, and despite whether, whether you know, the Vesey rebellion has been overstated or not, in the aftermath of the rebellion, White Charlestonians were convinced that this thing was a narrowly averted race war. And, and so they, they gobbled up the news that was coming out of the trial courts as if it was God-given truth, right? So they believed that, um, that free black sailors were connecting Charleston to this revolutionary black Atlantic. And, and, and so as these trial transcripts get published and circulated around, um, this sort of highlighted this, this trope of outside agitation. And of course, with Nat Turner uh, and, the, and the connections to the Liberator and... Uh, and with David Walker, right, this this notion of outside agitation sort of solidifies and, and black sailors are sort of pinpointed as sort of likely distributors of these sort of dangerous philosophies and dangerous ideologies. You know, it's interesting about what you just said about outside agitation. The other uh, the other time at which I hear that term is the next century during the civil rights movement, because, you know, you hear from. Uh, uh, white Southern legislators and and and, and uh, folks in power when you have uh, quote unquote black Northerners descending upon you know s- uh, Southern society to to try to change them you know the same sort of language the same sort of meta language about uh, race and 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 um, really the uh, what they're going to bring. Um, and, and obviously not even all of them, like with the freedom riders or anything were, were even black, but, you know, for one, in large ways, the races, you know, black populations, you know, already there. But then also I think about this in the sense of your time, you know, our time frame as well, because, you know, these outside, because if, because if you're a moral contagion, that means you're coming from the outside, you know, you're not natural to the space. And it's an interesting connection considering, you know, you still have these, you know, issues today when it comes to, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, like if, uh, you know, a civil rights leader of the contemporary, you know, descends upon a particular space and, 
you know, we have these outside agitators. Um, and so, right. yeah. you know, it's an interesting connection for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so yeah, two things to go off of that, right. It does transcend time and space. This idea that, that somehow things would just be fine if people, if, if spaces would just be left alone, right. That that's something that transcends time and space. And, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons that moral contagion, I think is a, is, is a title that, that speaks across time and places because this is a, a process that happens so frequently. And, and you bring up a nice sort of analogy with the civil rights movement, um, but but what this what this logic of moral contagion does, right? Regardless of time or place, it elides, it, it hides, it covers over the internal domestic problems in a given place, right? So for for a good chunk of the early twentieth century, right, uh, socialism and communism were quote unquote European influences, European ideas that were penetrating American society and destroying it from the outside. But what that does is it hides some of the internal. Um, you know, worker discontent that is a part of American capitalist development, right? It is it is domestic, uh, but but this uh, this trope of outside agitation uh, it it pushes subversive ideas that are domestic and makes it foreign, so that people that harbor those ideas are not just dangerous; they're also unpatriotic. They're not us; they are distant, and so it performs um, this sort of uh, this this psychological. Um, it provides a sort of psychological justification for making someone other. Uh, but, but again, it, it hides the deep cleavages within American society that, um, you know, that, that we see in the 1960s, we see in the early 20th century, we see in the antebellum period. And, and again, moral contagion is a, is a way to sort of gloss over internal divisions and, and sort of project the problems uh, that, that a society is facing on, on people that are not, not from here, that are from away. Correct. And so also, can we uh, can you talk to um, really as as um, the United States and, you know, American expansion is occurring and obviously slavery is extending. um, Can you talk about how um, really the 1850s, um, really how that decade is typically when we think about the 1850s and, and, and and when it comes to our area of history, it's typically seen as you know, ratcheting up period. It's seen as a period of of you know potential um, a reopening of the Atlantic slave trade by the United States, and you know Congress is becoming ever more violent and such, and uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. And so, can you talk to us about how you know how your book treats the 1850s in this uh, particular milieu of of events? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think the I think the second to last chapter really digs into the into the 1850s, uh, and and it's sort of interesting, right? Because at the same time that you see uh, this ratcheting up of uh, of sectionalism, of of regional discord, um, you know, the, the the complete fracturing and disintegration of the Whig Party, um, and you know, slavery and westward expansion. Um, sort of taking center stage in American, at least in national political discourse, there is a seeming truce on on the adjudication of laws against black sailors. Uh, it's almost as though the British states, Southern statesmen, uh, and, and even some Northern abolitionist groups were content to let um, these uh, these Southern Seamen Acts uh, be adjusted 
to remove some of the more flagrant abuses that were perpetrated underneath their through their administration. What I mean by that is South Carolina, Louisiana, Georgia, and Alabama, uh, at the end of the 1840s and into the 1850s, they all um, amend their statutes to allow free black sailors to stay on board their vessels, right? And and so what does that mean? That means and that... So, um, uh, and so um, free black sailors are not being arrested. They're being left on board their ships. So, so they're not being beaten. They're not being, I have sort of lots of examples of sailors being treated pretty, pretty horribly in Southern, in Southern port city jails. That's now being sort of left. I mean, they're being left on the, on their vessels. So that seems like it's a, a giant leap in the right direction, but at the same time, the larger story about, about citizenship uh, sort of gets sacrificed. It, it's almost as though, um, you know, the British state, Southern statesmen, the national government in the United States are content to let um, southern states treat black and white sailors differently, so long as southern statesmen aren't, you know, beating up on black sailors or forcing them to stay in these decrepit jails. Uh, and, and so, in some ways, there's a there's a, a truce that that sort of flies in the face of what's going on in sort of larger political discourse. But the overall result is a sacrificing, at least at the highest levels of the national governments, uh, sacrificing of black citizenship. And so, and so as well, um, in in an interesting point um, about your book is really about how um, all of this is within the, the the confines. All this is really within the confines of of uh, American uh, foreign policy, right? And I think that foreign policy and the diplomacy part um, is like super duper interesting to me because of the fact that. Um, I've let me say I interviewed about a year ago. Um, doc was a Dr. Matthew Carp at um at Princeton for his book uh, A Vast Southern Empire. Um, talking about slaveholders at the helm of American foreign policy. I think that's the exact last part of the title. And um, I'd always thought like diplomatic history was like super duper dry, you know, really boring and. And and after reading his book, I was like, oh, snap, this stuff is actually kind of dope. I like This is actually really like, you know, this is super duper vibrant. So so it's, I guess like anything where, you know, you just need the right interlocutor. Um, and I really see your both of your books as um, within, you know, the same uh, conver- similar conversations uh, when it comes to how slavery Because at the end of the day, you know, slavery is, you know, the, the continuing of the institution of slavery um, is at the is at the heart of both of your stories. And so um, with that, can you really think, you know, can you really talk to us about how, um, you know, because I, I always like to think about uh, how authors and historians can incorporate their books into like classrooms and such um, because, we, because here at the new books and african-american studies channel you know we've done well to broaden our audience and so uh we want to we want to get as many people in the conversation as possible including school teachers and so uh, i guess as a as a real big open question um can you talk to us a bit about how um you know school teachers and other folks can use this information within their classroom yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that's a great question, and um, it's something that I've given uh, a lot of thought, right? Because um, I think in some ways it's it's unfortunate that in the in the academy, um, 
we are trained to write for other academics and we're not necessarily trained to write um, in more sweeping and general prose. Uh, and uh, certainly there are good chunks of the book that, that I write more like an academic, but I think that if there was one section of the book that I think, um, you know, might speak to a more general and more broad audience, um, it would be the introduction and then the, the seventh chapter. And what I try to do with the seventh chapter is to, is to sort of put the black sailors and their experiences front and center and show how um, that everyday people uh, and the struggles that they go through uh, and, and sort of the, uh, the, the issues that, that antebellum African-Americans suffered, um, that this was not just confined to their own history, that, that, that their experiences and their interactions with a host of different constituencies, that this is not just a story of African-American history, that this is fundamental to understanding the American story, that, that you can't understand developments in American citizenship without looking not just at sort of like, you know, um, great thinkers, great African-American thinkers even, but, but without paying attention to sort of the the everyday quotidian experiences of the black maritime workforce. Um, and, and that, and that by moving around and by interacting with different people in different places, they exposed, um, one, their, their vulnerability. Um, but they also exposed some of the, the problems with, with citizenship writ, writ large. Right. And, and so, um, for, for, for people that aren't maybe, you know, you know, history professors or, or people studying for comps, right. Um, but for, for high school, you know, history teachers, um, you know, thinking about connecting the, the lives of everyday people and everyday people of color and, and tying it into the American story um, and, and not treating social history as in some way separated from political and legal history. I think that that seventh chapter really, I think, speaks exactly to that. So that would be what, what I would target. Uh, that would be the message. And that's, that's what I think would be most useful. Awesome. And uh, one other question for you. Um, what is, you know, especially when it comes to, um, I'm always interested in, in in Black histories of travel and and uh, mobility and such and, you know, ideas. Um, can you also talk to us about how um about how moral contagion uh your book you know not the concept but um but how your book um really involves the mobility of african americans and how you know because one of the things i always thought about was how the the mobility of african americans have has always been under um you know has always been you know under surveillance i guess and how you know, kind of thinking about how your story, you know, also fits into these stories about, you know, surveillance, because at the end of the day, if you kind of think about it, um, you know, black, you know, these these folks were Americans, right? Take the Afro-British part about it, out about it, you know, they were, you know, American born. Um, and yet they were, their surveillance was, you know, the surveillance of them was, you know, very, very, you know, high. So can you kind of talk about that in the in the context of kind of like the contemporary surveillance state too? Yeah, and you know, it it almost causes me, you know, it, it, I, I'm sure this is true across the board, right? But you know, thinking about, um, you know, every time we hear about um, 
individuals calling the police because uh, a black person is quote unquote not where they're supposed to be. It's it sort of, you know, I get flashed back to some of the stories I was reading in the archives because exact, that's exactly the story that's going on in, in these places, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, black Atlantic sailors have been going in and out of Charleston, you know, for hundreds of years by the time that by the time that these seamen laws go into place. And same thing with New Orleans, right? I mean, I mean, black sailors were regular fixtures there. Uh, but then all of a sudden, with this sort of heightened anxiety, all of a sudden they were seen as uh, not not supposed to be there, right? And 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 all of a sudden, uh, places were deemed as unsafe for people of color, um, and and not not deemed unsafe for people of color to be there, but deemed unsafe for white society to have people of color there. And and so it turns into sort of uh, a surveillance state, and and that's that's difficult to imagine considering you know, the relative um, absence of what, what we have in the 20 and 21st century, like this, you know, a full on police force in every town and every city, right? And this is a time period where you don't really have organized police forces outside of, you know, New York and, and Boston, and at least towards the end of the antebellum period, uh, New Orleans. So who is actually conducting the surveillance state? And, and of course, the answer is the individual citizenry. And so you have sort of this uh, situation where the, the Charleston waterfront and the New Orleans waterfront, these are not just sites worth with, with you know, intensive commercial exchange, right? But these are also sites where you have um, you know, anxious white Southerners um, keeping a very close eye on the black bodies that enter their jurisdictions. Um, and and you know, that that concept, and, and you talked about this with the civil rights movement, this this I and, and, and you know it, it's it's around us today, uh, this idea that there are places where unfamiliar or anonymous people of color are dangerous. And, 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 and that's one of the reasons I wanted to put, I wanted to write a book about, about black mobility. You know, there are a lot of fantastic books that are, that are geographically centered, that are geographically located, right? As a matter of fact, a lot of the, the best books on free people of color, generally speaking, are geographically centered, right? I mean, going all the way back to, you know, uh, John Hope Franklin's The Free Negro in, in North Carolina, right? And they're very geographically focused. And, and these, you know, these sort of, very intense granular social histories are, I mean, they told us stories that we never knew existed about the experiences of free people of color. But when you stay focused on individual geographic places, sometimes you don't get the, the mobility aspect. You don't get the, the anonymity aspect that free black sailors uh, had to live with, right? Because, um, you know, if you look at like Kurt Von Dacke's Freedom uh, Has a Face or, or Kimberly Welch's recent book, I don't know if you've interviewed her, you sure that book is fantastic. Will um, do. You don't you don't always get yeah you don't always get that 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 story of anonymity that black sailors did not have local networks they didn't have people that that could necessarily vouch for them so when they arrived in these cities they were literally uh, arriving uh, in the face of a surveillance state that was looking out for them and they didn't have networks that they could call on to to do anything about it that that, that at least in some places um, Southern African Americans did. Um, and because of that, and because of sort of an absence of, you know, uh, citizenship, uh, substantive citizenship, um, they were they were really hung out to dry. So, you know, th- this anonymity of the black sailor, this mobility of, of black bodies, I think, one, um, you know, it, it, it's something that, that transcends, again, time, and it, it's sort of uh, a hallmark of American race relations. But I think it also gets to this notion of 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 anonymity, this idea of be not being well known, and if you are that plus you have black skin, that makes you a, a particular threat 
uh, to, to, to the social order. And one last question before we wrap up. Now that the book is done and, you know, it's, it's out to the world and such, and, you know, we're going to be parading when this book, you know, is going to get you to go to awesome places like OH, um, uh, for example, um, during your research process, um, did anything surprise you? Um, any conclusions, any, you know, particular archival data? Um, did, did anything just surprise you? You know, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've been, it's tough to look back now and, and find the points that, that were surprising just because I've been working on this project for, I don't know, 12 years now. And, and so looking back from 12 years, it all sort of turns into a bit of a blur. Um, but I thought if there, was, if there was one thing that really jumped out at me, I think it was the degree to which this Southern anxiety and apprehension um, applied so indiscriminately, right? I mean, the, and so one of the reasons, so the first anecdote in the book is about this, um, about this um, Afro-British cabin boy. His name's John Joel, and he's 12 years old, right? He's, he's 12 years old, and when he comes into Charleston, he comes into Charleston, and he's, he's sick, right? I mean, he's, he's, I don't know if he has a fever or what, but the captain is sort of nervous about his health. And honestly, sailing into Charleston, you know, in, 18, in the 1840s, if you have somebody with a fever, that's a dangerous thing, uh, a different type of contagion altogether. Um, but this kid is sick, and he's 12 years old. And despite the fact that the captain's begging for you know to not take this kid to jail, they take you know the 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 sheriff takes him under the well you know not even the sheriff a deputy takes him into into custody and puts him in jail. And you know the Charleston jailhouse is not exactly the best place to be when your health is great. But you know a, a sick kid, right? That that to me I think was the most jarring that. That even if we um, try to imagine um, the anxious Southern mindset um, in Charleston in the 1840s, uh, it was just sort of jarring to me that a 12 year old would be a target of something like this. Um, Absolutely, I think that was probably because, the most you know, jarring. Like and, said, and then, of, of course, that there's like, yeah, there, well, there's another example too of, of this, you know, young um, Black British girl. Who, who's sailing into New Orleans and she's again, you know, 12, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, and, you know, they take her into custody and, and a, and a white uh, missionary uh, attempts to get her out of jail and they allow her to come out of jail, but they take careful measurements of her little adolescent body. So they know if she comes back in that they, uh, that they have sort of, that she has violated sort of this agreement that, 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 um, that she would never come back. And so the fact that, that, you know, that that moral contagion can affect a 10 or 11 year old and that they that a 10 or 11 year old somehow uh is is going to undermine what what does it say about your social system if a 10 or 11 year old is going to jeopardize it right uh, i think that was probably the most the most jarring part of the archival experience for me and as well um i guess uh mulligan and this would be the final one um you you said that this project um took you uh give or take about 12 years um what what what's next for you um have you you know what what else can we look forward to 
for you to come on uh, New Books in African-American Studies because, you know, this book is definitely great. Um, but every now and again, we get a little greedy. We we want to know when we can expect um, when we can expect our authors to 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 be able to grace their waves again. You know, that's a great question. Uh, so I'm I'm I have a couple of things that are that are in the works. Um, I'm writing a, a short piece on uh, the Dred Scott decision, but from uh, an Atlantic perspective. Um, and, and so that, that's, uh, that's probably next on the, on the agenda, but I think in terms of the next long-term project, uh, I think that it's, it's probably about time to start thinking seriously about, um, antebellum immigration laws, which are sort of all the rage now. There've been a couple of great books that have come out about, uh, immigration before the Chinese exclusion act at the end of the, the 19th century. And, and the degree to which uh, black bodies were being policed, not just in southern port cities, but across the country, uh, and, and immigration laws in places like Illinois, Indiana, Oregon, uh, Missouri, uh, that these places um, actually created, uh, or, or were at least the archetype of the modern American um, immigration regime. And so thinking about the ways that, again, surveilling the black body but in places that, that are not port cities, but but and not just the South, but in other places as well, uh, I think that's probably going to be the, the next big project. Uh, when is that going to happen? I mean, I could be optimistic and say that I would have something done in fewer than 12 <laughs> years, but you know, life has a way of getting in the way of things. So I won't make any prognostications and, and tie myself into some time frame that I'll probably never be able to keep. Hey, you know, like, you know, hey, I'm, I totally could understand that. Um, Lord knows I, uh, even just in the last couple of years of my life, I I did not think that I'd be um, in Delaware. And uh, but you know, times change and opportunities present themselves, and sometimes even newer opportunities present themselves as well. I heard um, I heard uh, Dr. Deborah Gray White say one time, you know, just just get that draft done, even if it's a even if it's a crappy one, uh, just just get it done, and then just like you know, keep, keep, you know, keep going at it and keep, you know, it's like being a sculptor, right? You have that big old block and then you just keep on, you know, you know, hitting at it, you know, keep hitting the chisel and everything. And, and then, you know, eventually, you know, you'll have something finished and, um, and then, you know, then you go from there or, or then you just become Dr. Michael A. Shepner and you have this wonderful book, uh, moral contagion, Black Atlantic sailors, citizenship and diplomacy in the antebellum America, and then it gets published in 2019 or 2029 or whenever through phenomenal uh, groups like Cambridge University Press Studies in Illegal History. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's sort of uh, you know some there's sometimes where I look at what happened and, and, and just wonder how how it took me so long to write this book, and then sometimes I look at it and think to myself. You know, I'm, you know, first generation college student, um, you know, neither of my parents went to college. I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, and, you know, when I graduated college, my entire extended family showed up. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, th thinking about that and then and then, you know, um, looking at this book and holding it in my hands, it, it it is an accomplishment. And, you know, it may have taken 12 years, but uh, I, I think it's, oh, yeah. it's finally worth it. Um, and and hopefully, like I said, the next project won't take me twelve years. But if it does, I guess there are worse things in the world as long as the the story has meaning and merit and 
uh, and opens our eyes to, to elements of America's past that maybe we didn't pay attention or to. Or things like uh, what recently happened in the news a couple of days ago where we find out that some of our favorite heroes and sheroes are spending millions of dollars to get their children into college. Oh, who would have thunk it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know right. how that ever happened, right? I've never. I've never heard of such a thing. I don't know how yeah, I don't know how that this is ever, you know, how why anybody didn't think of this before. This is the yeah, first time this has ever happened. So thank God it was you <laughs> To say the least, to say the least, yeah. Whenever whenever going back to your point about uh families and such and and your work, honestly my I think almost every single conference paper that I've delivered in the past three years going on four, my mom has been like, Adam, I'm not going to be there, but can you, can can you record it? I'm like, okay, mom, I got you. I got you. And because, you know, it's, it's a family thing, you know, I don't, you know, that's why I tell people, you know, religiously that you need to read the acknowledgments of people's books. Like I didn't do that in undergrad. So I didn't understand like the gravity of like what it took to, um, or what it takes to, 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 to write, uh, just generally much less write whole books and people put their life into these things. They put their families on hold. Sometimes they, you know, they deal with a whole lot of crap. And so, um, reading those acknowledgments to me, it's important, but then also just from, more of a pragmatic sense, then you get to kind of see who's in, who, who are in conversation with each other. Um, and to me, that can be just as important. If not, you know, that's actually pretty cool. Because sometimes it's people that you don't think are in the same, um, in the same area. So you might have someone who's very well known in, in colonial America, who's, you know, helping a lot of folks, even in like the, the civil rights era. So it's a really cool, it's a really cool bit to see, and it's like the the history of the history, right? Right. Yeah, I never really paid much attention to the acknowledgments until I had to, at the very end of writing my dissertation, think about who I wanted to acknowledge. And then, as soon as I had to write one acknowledgement, I find myself reading that. That's a, one of the first things I I do when I pick up the book is is to see who who the intellectual. Um, who helps you know craft these intellectual um, currents, right? And who crafted these people? How did they get to be who they are and thinking what they thought? Um, and to be to be honest, as much as I enjoyed writing Moral Contagion, I think I got uh, the most giddy writing the acknowledgments and 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 seeing friends and family and and old mentors that didn't even know uh, perhaps how much of an influence they had on my thinking, uh, seeing their name in print and seeing that that I owe a lot um, to them. Uh, for the way that they've sort of shaped me and helped shape the project, so it's really, really rewarding um, to to write the acknowledgments. And I'm I'm just like you. That's one of the first things I pick up and and look at when I'm, I'm sort of delving through a text. For the Outstanding. First time. And you know, once again, folks, we've had the phenomenal opportunity to spend the last fifty plus minutes with Dr. Michael A. Shepner, who is the author of the newly published text "Moral Contagion: Black Atlantic Sailors, Citizenship, and Diplomacy." in antebellum america and moral contagion was published by our friends at cambridge university press and this sucker is hot off the presses so go over to cambridge university press's website go to um go to amazon go to you know wherever you get your books uh legally and uh make sure you go get these go get these books and support these authors because I say this in also connection because I'm going to have a book out at some point. I'm going to need y'all to go get it. So, um, you know, once again, folks, you know, I am your host, Adam McNeil. 
And uh, I'm your host of Af- the New Books in African American Studies. And make sure that if you enjoy this podcast and any of the other podcasts within the New Books Network, that you go over to subscribe to the podcast or to the network and to the network at rather so that you can always get the new updates for the new scholarship because we try to get things when they're hot at the press so that they can go from the book to your ears within seconds. And so once again, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, New Books in African-American Studies, over and out.